I'm delighted that you're here, and I hope you've got your Bible with you and eager to study with us. As we continue a series we began last Lord's Day evening, back to the Bible. This is a home Bible study series. If you were not here last Lord's Day evening, the other elders, in light of our theme for the year of bringing others to Christ, ask that I present again this home Bible study series with several things in mind. The use that you can make of this material, I remind you, is hopefully that the reason for presenting it is to present the kinds of things that need to be taught to our friends and why they need to be taught, and then perhaps you're better equipped to put your own material together. That's what I've done, and perhaps you will find that very helpful for you. That as you sit down to study with someone, you want to put your own material together that fits your style, and then you teach your friend or neighbor. Another way that you can use this is download this. This is available on our website. Just find where the sermon is recorded. And, uh, and then you'll see a link there to download these slides and take that material and go and present that yourself. Or another way is to set up a home Bible study in person and set it up with your friend or neighbor or a relative. And I'll be glad to come into your home or theirs and, and teach that. Or we'd be glad to do a, a virtual study by way of Zoom. We'll be glad to do that as well. But another way in which I hope you'll utilize, and that is, this material is available on YouTube, or will be. The first is available, the first lesson and an introduction. If you'll go to my channel on YouTube, there's already a five-minute introduction. Send your friend or neighbor there to watch that introduction. And then encourage them to sit down with you and watch lesson one. And uh, lesson two will be up in a couple of days, and then lesson three on down the line. And that'll be a way in which we can reach our friends and neighbors. And I'll remind you of that as we go along. All right, we've looked at lesson one in our study last week. The Bible is the Word of God. We're ready to talk about applying the Bible today. And remember the first three of these studies I call foundational lessons. We're building a foundation that is important before we start building the house on top of that. And so we don't talk about salvation or what to do to be saved or uh, the importance of the church or being in the church or worship until we've laid the proper foundation. And so a little review of what we've considered, because this is what I would do in each one of the lessons that I present, is go back and reaffirm that foundation, just remind them what we saw. And so in our first study, we talked about the Bible being the Word of God. We started with the resurrection, and we showed that if Jesus was raised from the dead, then God exists, and Jesus is the Son of God, and the Word of God is true, and that becomes the hub of the Bible. Kevin, give me some light up here, if you will, please. The resurrection of Christ is the foundation and the basis of it all, and we gave a number of evidences of the resurrection of Christ. And so there's an abundant evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead, and if Jesus was raised from the dead, therefore God exists and his word is true. We talked about all of that. We talked about the inspiration of the scriptures, how the Bible is all fully inspired, and every word is inspired, and our conclusion was that if the Bible is the Word of God, then we ought to accept it, we ought to believe it, try to understand it, and then we also ought to do whatever it says. Now let's begin with some application of that. Let's make some headway of applying the Bible to us. Four things we want to consider. Number one, we want to talk about the Bible, can it be understood? And then secondly, does it make a difference what one believes? We'll talk about the importance of that in a moment. The two covenants that we are find in the Bible, and then the authority of the Word. So let's start with, can we understand the Bible? 
much of our religious world is confused about the Bible and they think the Bible is difficult, particularly if they haven't read the Bible and they haven't studied the Bible, they think it's difficult and hard to understand. And so let's begin with whether or not we can understand the Bible. If the Bible cannot be understood, then it's God's fault. Because we've already noted the Bible is the word of God. And if I'm reading and I can't grasp and understand it, it's not my fault. It's God's fault for not writing where I could understand. If I write a letter to you, an email to you, and you read it and you say, I can't understand it. Is that your fault or is it the fact that I poorly have written the letter? Well, if the Bible cannot be understood, it would be God's fault. The Bible is written on a fifth grade level as we can grade the Bible and scholars have graded the Bible as to what level it's on. And generally it's agreed that it's written on a fifth grade level. Now that doesn't mean that everything in it is simple. Our newspapers are supposed to be written on a fifth grade level as well. There's some things I don't understand when it's writing about the stock market. There's some language I don't understand. Perhaps there's something I would understand that you might not understand. You read in the local paper about what may be going on with reference to the horse industry, and they mention action devices, or they mention the nine-inch shank. You may not even know what a shank is. You might not know what an action device is. But you can understand it's on a level where a fifth grader could understand. That's the point of the newspaper. The average word is about five letters long. They're not difficult words in the Bible. So let's notice three passages that tell us we can understand the Bible. In John 8, 32, Jesus said, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth uh, shall make you free. Now, I'm going to go through this material a little quicker, but if you were teaching your friend or neighbor, I would suggest that maybe not every passage, but several passages, take the time to turn and read and let them see the text actually says what you're reading or suggesting to them. So John 8, 32, you shall know the truth. In Ephesians 3, 3 through 5, the Apostle Paul said, when you read, you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ. So we can know the truth, we can understand. Ephesians 5 gives a command that we must understand. And that is, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. So the Bible tells us it can be understood. And so our friend that we're studying with can understand the Bible. Let's raise another question. Can we understand the Bible alike? Quite frequently, someone says, well, others think we understand the Bible differently. You understand it one way in your faith, and we understand it differently. We have a different understanding of the Bible. I want to suggest to you that if these two men understand whatever we're talking about, then they will be alike. Let's illustrate with a simple two plus two. The question is, what is two plus two? And one man says four, and the other man says four. The man who said four on the one side, he understands what two plus two is. The man who said four on the other side, he also understands. And since they both understand, their answer is a lie. But let's suppose one man says six, and the other man says four. They don't have an understanding that's different. They don't understand differently. At least one of them misunderstands. It could possibly be both. One could say five and the other say six. And now they both misunderstand. But if they understand now, it's going to be a lie. So let's apply that to religious question of who is Jesus? And this man says, I think he's the son of God. And the other man says, I think he's the son of God. They both understand and now they are alike. But suppose this man says he's the son of God, but this man says, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, that he's merely a son, he is a prophet, but he is not the son of God. 
Now, do they understand differently? No. Somebody misunderstands. If they understand, it is alike. So we can understand the Bible and we can understand it alike. Now, let's move to a second area and let's talk about does it make a difference what one believes? Now, if you put your own material together, you talk to someone, you've got to get through this hurdle. And you may not address it with the same phraseology that I do, but at some point, you've got to get through that barrier that is the idea that it makes no difference what you believe in religion. Most of our religious friends have this barrier that says it makes no difference what you believe in religion. Now, how does that work? The way that works is that when you invite someone to a Bible study or you invite them to have a home study or you invite them to come to church, often they may say they have a church or they're, they're just not interested because they go to church somewhere else. That's because they think it makes no difference what you believe in religion. And so there is a barrier we've got to get through. I want to suggest to you this is a very popular concept. Most of our religious friends believe it. Those who think that faith alone is all that saves, just believe in the Lord. It makes no other difference what you do or what you practice or what you believe in religion. Someone else may say sincerity is all that matters. Or someone may say join the church of your choice. That says it makes no difference what you believe. Or some people will equate good moral people with being Christians. They may not even go to church they may not follow the will of God, they may not know a thing about Jesus, but they're good moral people, then they are equated with Christians. And here is kind of a new twist in the last few years. Someone will say, after all, we're all wrong about something. And so you may be wrong about something, and I know I'm wrong about some things too, and I may be wrong about what we do in worship, but after all, we're all wrong about something. In other words, it doesn't make any difference. So what I'm trying to present is, this is a very popular concept, and I'm trying to get my prospect I'm studying with to see that this is all saying the same thing, and this is a very popular concept. Now let's start with the concept that there is an objective standard. We have to establish that. That there is an objective standard in religion. By an objective standard, we're talking about a fixed standard that doesn't vary from person to person. If there is an objective standard, we have to conclude it makes a difference what you believe in religion. Now let's come from the other side. If it makes a difference what we believe in religion, therefore there has to be an objective standard. Now let's illustrate that where our friend can understand, and you don't have to know about this subject to even understand the principle because all of you have electricity in your house. And suppose you're wanting to do some work on your house and you don't know much about that and you ask, could somebody help me with wiring my house and... The friend that's going to help you says, I don't know much about it, but after all, it really doesn't make any difference how you wire the house as long as the lights come on. But a wiser friend may advise you, I don't think you better do that because I don't think that's the way you do that. Well, see, sometimes in wiring a house, one might say, well, here's what I think and how I feel it ought to be done. I feel like the wire ought to be run this way. And someone else may say something like, well, I know an electrician who said, and he told me that a 12-2 wire would be good enough for a dryer. That's what he told me. He said it'd work. That's what an electrician told me, he says. And another one says, well, I talked to an electrician. He said that won't work. And someone else says, you know what? Well, I'll tell you how my dad did it when he wired his house. Well, you know, my dad, though, did it different than that. 
And someone else comes along and says, my neighbor did it this way when he wired his house. All of those are what we would call subjective standards. By subjective standard, they vary from person to person. Your friend, the electrician, may differ from my friend who was an electrician. And you see, my dad did it this way, and your dad did it a different way. And the way you feel it ought to be done will differ from the way he or she feels it ought to be done. And my neighbor may differ from your neighbor. Those are subjective standards. So does it make a difference how you wire the house? Well, your wiser friend says, you know what? I've heard there is a national electric code that all states go by. And this national electric code means that there is an objective standard that doesn't vary from person to person. Doesn't matter what your dad said, doesn't matter what your neighbor did, doesn't matter what the electrician says, here is the objective standard. Now, if there is an objective standard of how you wire the house, then it makes a difference in how you wire the house, doesn't it? Let's come from the other side. If it makes a difference how you wire the house, there must be an objective standard somewhere. Whether I have a copy of it or not, or understand it or not, there must be an objective standard. Now, we can understand that with wiring the house. Let's go back and apply that to religion. There is an objective standard in religion. And if there is that objective standard, it makes a difference what we believe. Paul made an appeal to what was written of God. According as it is written, I believe. 1 Peter 4.11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Oracles of God are the standard. Paul said, the things which I speak are the commandments of the Lord. There are some things that are not the commandment of the Lord. There are some things that are Furthermore, the Bible talks about the Word of God. You welcomed it as it is in truth, the Word of God. The inspired scriptures. This might be a good point to go back and point out to our friend that we're studying with that this is what we're talking about, the Word that is inspired of God. So there is the inspired scriptures, all scriptures given by inspiration of God, and the very words that were chosen by the Holy Spirit, those two passages we used in our last lesson. So if there is such a thing as an objective standard, it makes a difference what we believe in religion. If not, we can believe whatever we want to believe. Now let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is a powerful passage. I use this in gospel meetings all the time. And hammer away at this passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 10 through 12. This is a powerful passage to talk to your friend or your neighbor that you're studying with. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. It contrasts the lie to the truth. The lie here is not just any lie that someone may tell you. They may tell you the wrong age that they are. They lied about their age. But that's not the lie that's under consideration. This is a lie that is in contrast to the gospel truth. Now I want you to notice in this context, he lists things that they did under the lie and then goes to the consequence of that and then he lists things that they do under the truth and the consequence of that. Now let's see what this text actually says. Beginning at verse 10, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this reason God would send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they might all be condemned who do not believe the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Now we're going to read that again, but I, what I want you to see is that here is what people did. They were deceived, they were deluded, they believe a lie, and they perish and they are condemned. Those who love and believe the truth are saved. Now let's see if we don't find every point in our, in our text. Look at verse 10. 
Verse 10 now. Verse 10 starts by saying this, With all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive a love of the truth, that they might be saved. That's verse 10. Now verse 11. For this reason God would send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Now verse 12, that they might all be condemned who do not believe the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Every point on the screen is found in our text. I'm seeing not only that it makes a difference what you believe, but I'm seeing the difference that it makes. It's not a difference in the flavor of religion you have. It has a difference in salvation and condemnation. It makes a difference what we believe in religion. It's possible to be deceived and believe a lie. Now that's important because later on in our studies, our friend may say, you know what, I don't think it makes a difference. We're going to come back to this again. We're going to keep coming back to this again and again. Now let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 13. This passage, if they even have a smattering knowledge of the scriptures, they've probably heard of the story found in 1 Kings chapter 13 about the young prophet. So let's talk about the young prophet. In 1 Kings chapter 13, there was a young prophet. We call him a young prophet in contrast to the old prophet that is identified later at verse 11. But be that as it may, this young prophet comes and prophesies against the altar and the king invited him to come home with him. And the young prophet said, I can't go home with you. Well, why can't you? Look at verse 9. Here's what he said. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. Three simple rules, do not eat bread, do not drink water, and do not return. I know he understands it because he's able to turn around after understanding it from God and explain it to the king. Three simple rules. There was an old prophet there at verse 11, and he asked his sons which way he went, and they pointed out, and he saddled up and went after the young prophet, and he found him, and he came, came to him, and he said... For I have been told by the word of the Lord, he invited him to come home with him, and he said, no, I can't. I'm backing up to verse 16. Why can't you? He said, um, it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread, verse 17, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. I know he understands it. That's the second time he's explained it. Three simple rules. Do not eat bread, do not drink water, and do not return by the same way you came. Now verse 18. The old prophet said, I too am a prophet, as you are, and the word of the Lord said to me, bring him back to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. Bring him back to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. Now, I know that was a lie. And you, you say, how do you know? Notice the rest of verse 18. But he lied to him. So I know it's a lie. And there's another reason I know it's a lie. It is the exact opposite of what the truth was. Do not eat bread, eat bread. Do not drink water, that he may drink water. Do not return, bring him back to your house. The exact opposite of the truth. Now here's the question. Did it make any difference which one of those he believes? Is sincerity all that matters? So here the young prophet is presented with a dilemma. Do I believe what I have heard from God? But he says God has told him something different. Which one of those do I believe? Look at verse 19. So he went back with him and he ate bread in his house and he drank water. Did it make any difference? Read further in the story, you'll find God caused a lion to come forth and to slay him because he was disobedient to the word of the Lord. It made a difference what he believed in religion. Let's go a step further. It makes a difference what we practice in religion. If that's not the case, then we can do anything we want to do in religion, including handling snakes as an act of worship and even immoral acts. Those both have been practiced as acts of religion in the name of religion. 
So could we do that? Someone said, I don't think it makes any difference as long as you're sincere. Is, is that sincere worship acceptable when one handles the, the copperhead and the rattlesnake in worship? And they think that's part of their worship. And someone else says, that we, we fornicate one with another, or they don't call it that, but we have love with one another while we assemble, and they have done that in the past. Is that acceptable unto God? It makes a difference what we practice. Our practice must be found in the scriptures. Hebrews 8 and verse 5. Now I'm going to quickly mention these because you're familiar with these, but I would go a little slower to my non-Christian friend that we have a pattern to follow. Just as the Old Testament said the, the tabernacle was to be made according to the pattern, all things are to be done in the name of the Lord. Colossians 3, 17. We are to abide within the doctrine of Christ, 2 John and in verse 9. And furthermore, we walk by the same rule. We have a rule to walk by. Now, any one of those we could take time to talk about a little more with our friend if we think they're not grasping and understanding, like explaining to do something in the name of the Lord. I might go to Acts 4 and 7 and explain that that means to do it in, by the authority of another. There's your divine commentary on that. So we must abide by what is authorized by God. That means it makes a difference what we practice in religion. Now let's talk about the difference that it makes. You see, our practice affects our fellowship with God. We just saw that in 2 John 9. And it affects our eternal salvation. What I want my friend to see is, early on in the studies, we're only in the second lesson, but what I want him to see is that it does make a difference what you believe, and it makes a difference what we practice, and here's the difference that it makes of whether or not we're right with God and whether or not we're going to go to heaven. It's not just a difference in flavor of religion. And so we're not trying to convert them from one religion to another or from one flavor to another. We're trying to convert them to the truth of God. It makes a difference what we believe. Now, let's talk about consequences. No matter what you accept in religion or what you do in religion, there are consequences that go with it. So let's explore this just for a moment. If it doesn't make any difference what you believe in religion, if it doesn't make any difference at all, then it doesn't make any difference whether one believes or not. If not, why not? Someone said, I don't think it makes any difference what you believe. All right? Let's just accept that. It doesn't make a difference whether you believe. Oh, no, I think you have to believe. Tell me what you have to believe. Tell me what you have to believe. You have to believe in God, but then it makes a difference whether you believe in God or not. Well, I think you have to believe in Christ. Okay, then it makes a difference what you believe. But if we really hold to this idea, it makes no difference what you believe as long as you're sincere. It doesn't make any difference whether you believe. And if it doesn't make any difference whether you believe, it doesn't make any difference whether you believe the Bible or not. So when someone says, I don't think it makes any difference what you believe, what they're saying is you don't have to believe the Bible and what it says then is what the Bible has to say is unimportant. And since God authored the Bible, that was our first lesson, then what God says is unimportant. You see, that concept that says it makes no difference what you believe doesn't border on it is blasphemy to say that. Because it's taking the standard and saying, you know what, this is unimportant. Go back to the electrical code illustration. You come and present me with the book that says the National Electric Code for 2020, and I'll look at that and i say, you know what? It still don't make any difference what, how you are the house. What I'm saying is that book doesn't matter. And when someone says, you know what? It doesn't make any difference what you believe in religion. They're saying that book doesn't matter. 
But if it does make a difference what we believe and we have established, then I need to know what the truth is. Jesus said you should know the truth. I need to seek the truth because it makes a difference. And if it makes a difference, I need to study and examine what I'm taught, including what I'm teaching in the home Bible study. The Bereans search the scriptures daily. And I would encourage my friend, they may be in a denomination that they, want, they need to be taught to study and examine what they're hearing. So I need to study and examine what I've been taught because it makes a difference. Just like the electrical code, when the electrician says you can do it this way, well, I don't know about that. Can you show me in the code where, where that's, show me in the code. I want to know. That way I know it's right. And then I need to obey the truth, 1 Peter 1 and verse 22, and if it makes a difference, I need to be careful, walk circumspectly. In other words, I need to be careful what I believe, careful what I accept, careful what I might practice, because it makes a difference what we believe and what we practice in religion. Let's move and talk about the two covenants now. This is important somewhere early in your studies to establish what is our standard of authority. Is it the Old Testament or the New Testament? So what we want to establish is the two covenants are different. The old has been taken away and we live under the new. And so let's see if we can't do that in a very quick fashion. Now, let's start with the fact that there is a difference in the Old Testament and the New Testament and they differ in at least these three areas. To whom it was given the purpose it has, and the duration that it has. All I'm trying to show is that the Old and New Testament are not the same thing. Let's start with the Old Testament. I won't take time to trace all of these references now. I might need to, particularly if this person I'm talking to really relies on the Old Testament as their standard of authority. Or if it happens to be a Seventh-day Adventist, I'd really want to camp on this. But it may be one who's not really counting on that, but I still want them to see that. Nonetheless, the Old Testament was directed to Israel. Exodus 20 says those to whom it was addressed were those who came out of Egypt. I didn't come out of Egypt, did you? It was addressed to the children of Israel. Notice in Exodus 31, verse 13, 16, and 17, same thing in Deuteronomy 5, to the children of Israel, to the descendants of Abraham. I'm not a descendant of Abraham. I'm not of Israel, not of physical Israel. So it's not addressed to me and it's not addressed to you. So here it was addressed to Israel. What was the purpose for it? Galatians 3 said it was added because of transgression to bring men unto Christ. Now again, in my home Bible study, I probably would take the time to read that very carefully in Galatians 3. It was to last until the seed comes. Galatians 3, 9. And then I might go to Galatians 3 that it was to last until Christ had come, but we're now no longer under the schoolmaster. So it was given to Israel to bring us unto Christ and to last until the seed came. That differs from the New Testament that was given to all men. The gospel is for every creature under heaven. It is for the salvation of mankind, not merely to bring men to the time of Christ, and it was to last until the end of the age, Matthew chapter 28. They're not the same. So they indeed are different. There's a difference in the Old and New Testament. That doesn't tell us which one we're under, so we'll get to that. The Old Testament has been taken away. And you might need to explain what that means because I have found some that when you talk about the Old Testament is taken away, they look confused because they have a Bible and they still have an Old Testament. No, it hasn't been taken away. I've still got it. It has only been taken away in the sense it's no longer effective. You have to be quite simplistic in your own Bible studies. So it's been taken away in that sense. We're dead to the law. Romans chapter 7, an illustration of marriage, that you have to be dead to one before you can be married to another. 
So one is dead to the law that he might be joined unto Christ. Furthermore, the Bible says in Colossians 2, 14, it was nailed to the cross. That is, through the cross, it came to an end. And in Galatians chapter 3, we're no longer under the schoolmaster. Now, that's one of the simplest passages I can use because I can show that the law was our schoolmaster or our tutor, depending on your translation. And then it says we're no longer under the tutor, no longer under the schoolmaster. I don't even have to understand what it means that he's a school, that it is a schoolmaster or a tutor. I just know that the law was our tutor and we're no longer under the tutor. We're not under the law. So today we're under the new covenant. How do I know? Well, while the Old Testament was still in force, Jeremiah 31, we were there this morning, pointed to the coming of a new covenant. So I'm not just going over to the Old Testament, New Testament rather, and showing it claims to be new. But the Old Testament said a new is coming. So let's see that in Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. What about this new covenant? Look at verse 32. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers. So while the Old Testament was still in force, it was being said there's going to come a new covenant that's different from the old covenant. Now that passage is quoted now in Hebrews chapter 8. So let's see the application Paul made of that. He said, for if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have no place been found for the second. So there is a distinction between the first and the second. Now he quotes from Jeremiah, where Jeremiah said a new covenant is coming that's not according to the covenant he made with the fathers. Let's go further in Hebrews chapter 8. What does he say? Look at verse 13. In that he says a new covenant, he made the first obsolete, and now it is becoming obsolete and growing old and is now ready to vanish away. Now his argument is the fact that a new covenant came along that made the other old. So why do we call this the old covenant or the old testament? Because we have a new. It's like getting a new car. And you call this one your new car and this other one your old car. This one may be just a year old. And this one is now the new car. Let's keep those two cars for the next 20 years and you still have the old car and the new car. Even though it's now 20 years old itself, the other one is like 21 years old. This is your new car compared to your old. Because it was the previous one. That's his point here. In that we have a new covenant that made the other old. Now here are two, two conclusions we've just drawn. The two conclusions are there would be a new covenant and it's going to be different from the old covenant. Now that's important for our friend to see. Now Hebrews chapter 5 shows how the new covenant works. The Hebrews chapter 9 says it works like a last will and covenant, a last will and testament. That is, one writes their last will and testament, it does not become law until that person dies. So likewise, he said, the testament becomes a force after men are dead, otherwise of no strength at all while the testator lives. So when did the New Testament come in force? Upon the death of Christ. And so now, the new covenant has become law because of the death of Christ. Now let's spend the rest of our time in talking about the authority of the word. That's important for them to understand the power and the authority of the word. Now, let's see what we see in this. What I want us to see is that the Word of God came from the mind of God to the written Word. God, in His mind, the text says that, in, that he, spoke, he speaks unto us through His Son, Hebrews chapter 1, 1 and 2. 
So God the Father takes what was in his mind and he speaks to us through his Son. Now Jesus has all authority. Paul would say the things that he wrote are the commandments of the Lord. Jesus chose to reveal his will that came from the mind of God by the power of the Holy Spirit unto the apostles and prophets. So we could look at all those passages that talk about the Holy Spirit guiding the apostles. They wrote it down, Ephesians chapter 3, wrote every word by the direction of the Holy Spirit, so that now what we have, the original writings, Ephesians 3, Paul said, we wrote a foreign few words whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ. Here's the point I'm wanting us to see. I'm wanting us to see that the Word of God has the power and the authority of God behind it. What I'm trying to get my friend to see is this. Then when we open the scriptures later and show them, here's what the Bible says about, and you name the subject, that if we can show them book, chapter, and verse for it, that has the same power and authority as if God had thundered that out of heaven. What I want them to see is that when I show them in this written word, where did this come from? This is an English translation from this original writing, and it came from the apostles who received it by the power of the Holy Spirit, who got it from Christ, who got it from the mind of God. So when I show them that here you must be baptized in order to be saved, that's the same as if God was crying out from heaven saying everyone must be baptized to be saved. That's what I want them to see. It has the power and authority of God behind that. Now, I'm going to skip a couple of things, but I include this in the material. I include this in, in some of the material, and I will on the video just briefly, how the Bible teaches. And so what I do sometimes is, depending on what the, the person believes and what I know about them, do I need to get to this point now or come to this a little bit later? But we're talking about applying the scriptures. What I probably would show, I'm not going to develop the thought, that from John 13, Jesus used command, example, and necessary inference to teach. And then I probably would move on to Acts 15 if I needed to and talk about command, example, and inference. I'm wanting them to see how we apply scripture. But I might hide those slides and save those for another time, and I'm going to do that for us tonight um, because you've been through all of that material. But I'm going to include that in the video as you send your friend or your neighbor there because we might want to establish how the Bible teaches so that when later on they raise a question, I'm not ready to talk about instrumental music now. I won't come to the fifth lesson if we talk about it at all. But when that question comes up, I want them to have some background I can go back to. You remember we talked about how the Bible teaches? Command, example, and inference. And so I may go back and point all of that out. So that's lesson number two. How do we apply the Bible? Does it, can we understand it? And the answer is yes. Does it make a difference what we believe? It certainly does. Which do we live by, the Old or New Testament? That's an important question for them to sort through. And then the Bible has the authority of God behind it. And so the only thing I would ask my friend at this juncture when that lesson is through is, would you like to see the third lesson? If they say no, then I don't put any pressure on because they're probably not interested. Maybe that seed will take root somewhere. But if they say, yeah, they're interested, then we establish a time to do that. Now, it's in lesson three where most of those who've gone through this says, now things are beginning to make sense to me. This is where the door begins to open to them. Now, so don't look for a big door to open for you because you already know the material. But for your non-Christian friend, lesson three is where things begin to unlock for them, most of them. And it begins to make a lot of sense to them. And that's the last of our foundational studies. 
There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come this evening believing Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?